What kind of storyteller are you? What kind of storyteller are you? Are you a storyteller that's just the facts? I'm just going to give you the facts. I just want you to know the facts. Here's the facts. Now that you know the facts, move on. Is that what kind of story? Are, are you a storyteller that um, gets uh, confused by the facts and wants to embellish the story? This is what happened and this is what's going on. This is where we're at and this is how I felt about it. Maybe you're a storyteller that forgets the point of the story in the middle of the story, and then you kind of go off in a tangent, and then you come back and hope that maybe sometime you have received and gotten to the point. Maybe you're just not a storyteller at all. You're like, I don't want to tell the story. There's no story that's good enough for me to tell, and I just don't know how to tell it that well, so I don't tell stories. We're walking through this thing called the gospel life. And we've come to this part of this sermon series where we're looking at what it means to have a solution. So we started by letting ourselves know through Scripture that, that the, the gospel, what God calls out, is actually the person of Jesus. That his work, his showing forth all that, Jesus, all that God is, the, the one who is the purest and, and the most right example, personhood, holding all that is God, is Christ. And in that, he shows us that Christ in his steadfast love comes for us and that God pursues us to bring us back into relationship with himself. And that's the gospel that's done through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Last week, we talked about the problem. And, and the problem, quite honestly, is us. <laughs> it's our heart. It's the fact that we don't see Christ as king high and lifted up. We see ourselves that way. We want to put ourselves on the throne of our heart and live life the way that we want to live it. The theological word is sin. <laughs> we'll say mistakes or brokenness and, and try and soften it a little bit. But it's sin. But today I want to talk about the solution to that problem. The thing that moves us to that place where we encounter the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, and why Jesus is the one who solves the problem of us desiring to be on the heart, on the throne of our heart. But it's kind of like telling a story. When we see the book, the Bible, which really is a library of 66 books, Throughout that library, as we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we look at the Gospels, which are these stories of Jesus, his biography by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we go back even into the Old Testament, we see the way that God dealt with the Israelite nation and, and went to save them and move them and bring them in. We see all sorts of different ways that God is telling us in story truthful story, real story, how he is in Christ the solution for our problem. Sometimes those stories are just facts. Sometimes they're stories that seem to ramble and move all over the place. And so it can be difficult sometimes, I think for me in particularly, to really grasp what it is that is taking place when Jesus gets on the cross. 
I say that very specifically. Jesus got on the cross. Fleming Rutledge is a theologian and a pastor, and um, she wrote this great book called The Crucifixion. And she says that all these stories that we see in Scripture, all these things in the Bible that we see can be broken down, not necessarily completely neatly, (laughs) but in some ways into two categories. This idea that the cross is an atonement for sin as a responsibility and a response to our guilt that we have. That we're sinners, right? And so we have guilt. And so the cross is a response to that. Atonement is coming as a response. Or it is also a deliverance from the alien power that is sin. See, that understanding that actually we were created not to be in this broken, fractured relationship with God. We were created to be in a loving dancing relationship with God. And because it's come in, it's this alien power. It should not be. And so the cross is, in fact, a deliverance from that alien power. It can kind of fit into those two things. And it's important, I think, for us to step into that as we see what this solution really is. Because the solution is what happens on the cross and in the resurrection. And we see that in this passage in Romans, these two places. Let me reread this passage, the first one, that Romans 3, 21 through 26, in the contemporary standard Bible version. It says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to or talked about from the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because God in His restraints, God passed over the sins previously committed. But God presented Him, Jesus, to demonstrate God's righteousness at this present time so that he would be just, so God would be just, and justify the ones who have faith in Jesus. So how does this story unfold for us? We're broken. We like to sit on the throne of our hearts. We like to be in control. And what that does is fracture who we really were created to be, that alien power. And because it's fractured, it made us an enemy. And as an enemy, there needs to be some sort of peace brought. And that peace can only be brought through one who is above and beyond. The one who can come in, and he does that in Jesus. That word was propitiation in the ESV that we read. Here it says mercy seat. It's this idea of atonement. This bringing in and making completely new the way it always should be. That yes, there is a penalty for what we have done. But that penalty doesn't come out of anger. It doesn't come out of retributive punishment. It comes out of restorative justice. There's a difference. 
So retributive punishment is to say, you've done wrong. I need to show you you've done wrong. The best way to show you that is to give you a harsh consequence and reality. And sometimes when we hear the stories through Scripture, we think that's what's going on. But if we look deeper, we begin to recognize that this sort of thing that is happening on this cross, where Jesus got upon it, is restorative justice. It says, there are things that are not right. I need to show you they're not right. I'm going to pay the punishment myself by getting up on this so that I can restore you to relationship with me. That you're separated because of what has happened, but I will come to you. You don't have the power to do this on your own. In fact, there's nothing you can do that can help you get right. Get whole. Be made new. We, we try all sorts of things. We work very hard to sort of make ourselves worthy and right. But the fact is, is we can't move to that place. We, we can't do the things because in the end, our hearts turn on themselves. And it's not just you and it's not just me. It's everyone. He makes it very clear. There's no distinction. You want to know what is the most inclusive thing in the world? Our ability to elevate ourselves. Everybody does it. And in that place, we lift ourselves higher than God. But God says, no, no, I'm even more inclusive than that. I will bring myself down in order to bring you to wholeness. And that's exactly what he does. And when he does it, he brings it about because of faith. Uh, uh, this is a mystery. It, it, it's sort of beyond us in some ways. It's only through Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts through Christ that we're able to even glimpse and, and grasp this. Or through better men and women than me. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. The man who has faith is a man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. No longer looks at anything he once was, and he does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work, and rests on that alone. You see, when we move into this place and we recognize that Christ himself is the solution to the problem of us sitting on the throne of our hearts, that he's the one who will gently move us off in all compassion and mercy and grace because he has made a way for him to sit on the cross, on the throne of our hearts, through the cross. Then we recognize that there's nothing I've done that will keep me from God. There's nothing I'm doing now that will, and there's nothing I can hope to do that will, because God is the one who does the work. And so my identity changes from being one who is separated from God to being one who is sitting with Christ in firmly Him. And we move on to that passage in Romans 5 that lets us know then who we are. That we are justified by faith and we now have peace with God. And that we not only have peace, we have faith. And we not only have faith, but we have hope. Fleming Rutledge, I mentioned her earlier. She, she said this about what's happening here. 
she goes through all of the ways to look at the cross. And she boils it down to this. Forgiveness is not enough. Belief in redemption is not enough. Wishful thinking about the intrinsic goodness of every human being is not enough. Inclusion is not a sufficiently inclusive message, nor does it deliver real justice. There are some things, many things that must be condemned and set right if we are to proclaim a God of both justice and mercy. Only a power independent of this world order can overcome the grip of the enemies of God's purpose for his creation. Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, offered himself to be condemned and rejected the righteous one, giving himself up in full knowledge of what would happen to him. And in perfect union with God, his father, he went to Golgotha carrying his own cross and upon which he was nailed, despised and rejected by man. At the historic time and place of his inhuman and godless crucifixion, all demonic powers loose in the world conveyed in Jerusalem and unleashed their forces upon the incarnate Son of God. Derelict, outcast, God-forsaken, he hung there as a representative for all humanity and suffered condemnation in place of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. None of this would avail against the world's evil were it not for the righteousness of God. The power of God to make right what has been wrong is what we see by faith in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, there cannot be serious talk of forgiveness for the worst of the worst, let alone the least of the worst. How amazing it is for us to step back and see on the cross as Paul reminds us that in that work, God is proving who he is, right? It says he is made just. He is proving his justice, his righteousness, who he is, and he is making us right and just. That in that act that seems so foreign to us, that we can sometimes hear a narrative that says this is child abuse because it's the father hurting the son. No, it's the father getting on the cross. Self-sacrificing to say, I need to prove to you who I am. Not in that way. I will prove to you who I am. By getting on the cross so that you can receive righteousness that you hold. She goes on to say this, and I'm sorry I'm quoting her a lot, but it's, it, it just it, it rocked my world. <laughs> All the manifold biblical images with their richness, complexity, and depth come together as one to say this. The righteousness of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. The precious blood of the Son of God is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The ransom is paid to deliver the captive. The gates of hell are stormed. The Red Sea is crossed and the enemy drowned. God's judgment has been ex executed upon sin. The disobedience of Adam is recapitulated or remade in the obedience of Christ. Christ. 
A new creation is coming into being and those who put their trust in Christ are incorporated into his life. The kingdoms of this present evil age are passing away and the promise of God's kingdom is manifest, not in a way, but the promised kingdom is, is here. For within Adam's own flesh, the incarnate son fought with and was victorious over Satan on our behalf and in our place. Only this power, this transcendent victory, won by the Son of God, is capable of reorienting the cosmos to the rightful Creator. And in reorienting the cosmos to the rightful Creator, He reorients our own wandering heart to be made new. And so we go to that chapter 5 again. And we pause as Paul says these things, these affirmations, the fruits of justification for us, both in our past and in our presence and in the future. We have peace with God. Why? Because we have been forgiven and made new. We have a standing in grace right now. That God no longer sees us as rebels, as ne'er-do-wells, as ragamuffins, even though we might see ourselves that way. God sees us as sons and daughters, as those who He paid for and brought into His family to hold them deeply. And we rejoice with the hope of glory that we have something to look forward to, even in this moment that we are being made new day by day, that this present evil age does not affect us in the same way because we know we are overcomers. Not in the way that we're like, yeah, but in the way that we are humbled in walking in our reliance to God's mercy and peace and grace. It changes who we are. It changes who we know our own selves to be. That we are no longer those who are against God, but we are those who have been brought in and identify completely as his children. When I was about eight years old, I was at a basketball game at Midwest Christian Bible College. That might not have been Christian Bible College, but that's how I remember it. And my uncle was playing basketball. And my cousin and I, we decided that the basketball game was not that great. So we went to explore the campus of this very small Bible college. And we decided that we would go into this one particular building and we climbed up all of the stairs in that building. And as we got to the top, we recognized that there was still a door. And we opened that door and we walked out. And when we walked out, we realized we were on the roof of that building. It's about four stories. And as we walked out, the door behind us shut. And we turned around and we couldn't open it. It was locked. And so here we are, eight years old, on the roof of a four-story building in Midwest Christian Bible College in downtown Oklahoma City, which seemed a lot rougher than it probably really was. And we stood and we walked along. My cousin walked closer to the edge to see if there was a way down. And we got to this one place and there was this ladder that kind of went down and we looked at it 
And my cousin said, There's, that's the way down. And I was like, no, it's not the way down. <laughs> and he said, no, that's the way down. And I said, that is not, no, that's not the way down. My cousin said, we've got to go down and look. And so we both kind of climbed down the ladder. And we got down. And at the time, at, at eight, it seemed as if it was like three stories. Like that, that ladder was only one story, and then it was a three-story drop. And I, there was no way I, I was going to do that. So I climbed back up the ladder. And I just resigned to the fact that I was going to live on the roof at Midwest Christian Bible College. Like I was, this is my life. This is what happened. This is who I am now. I'm that guy that lives up there. Hopefully somebody will feed me or something. And my cousin, the brave person that he was, dropped from the ladder. And then he ran up the building up the staircase and got to the door and opened the door and let me out. And I thought to myself, you're my hero. Like I ran to him. I hugged him. You saved my life. You saved my life. We went and told my parents how he had saved my life. I told everybody, my uncles, saved my life. God saved my life. Save my life. It was desperate. That's who we are. Now, I went back later when I was older. It was like five feet. Like literally five, like, like I could go, oh, there you go. Like I could reach up and grab it. That's not the case. The gap that Christ overcame. The division that sin brought could only be done by Christ. And in that he comes and says, I know you. I have saved you. You are with me. And our response should be, you saved me. He saved me. It becomes who we are. I went from being somebody who could not be saved on a roof to somebody who was saved. It changed who I was. What Jesus does for us changes who we are. Our identity rests completely in Him now. If you're not there, know that He is waiting. He's not just waiting. He is actively pursuing. If you're showing up on a Sunday morning here, know that He's actively pursuing. If it crosses your mind when you're walking, He is actively pursuing. He doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't give up. He is steadfast. It's okay to get tired of it. It's okay to get to the point where you're like, I'll just live up on the roof. It's okay. He won't stop. He'll continue to pursue. Because He wants you to be who He wants you to be. Who He made you to be before the foundation of the world to be. Let me pray for us. Help us to remember that we are in You. You completely and only. Jesus 
It is only in you that we are saved. It is only in you through your work, through what you've done, that we come into this relationship with a steadfast, loving God who allows us to be seen as who we were created to be. Let us trust in you today in that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond with